Good morning, my name's Aubrey, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to add my greetings to Drew's, and it's very good to see you, I'm glad, to, I'm glad that you're here at Incarnation. If you have a Bible, please find our Old Testament reading, 1 Samuel chapter 28. It's the passage that Sharon read to us just a few minutes ago, and uh, the Bible's a really big book, and it's hard to find your way around in it, um, so if you need your table of contents, do that. Or you can just look up here. It's about a quarter of the way through. You can see there. There are things going on in this chapter that can sound pretty strange to some of us. Uh, Mostly to the white folks in the room. To people who are basically modern, rational, enlightenment shaped from the West with worldviews represented by the New York Times and the New Republic and NPR and so forth and so on. But that's clearly not everybody in this room. We have uh, people from Africa and Asia and Eastern Europe and Latin America. And just be careful that you don't kind of um, make your, your ethnic group the center of reality and extrapolate that because it strikes you as strange, it therefore must be strange. The opposite could be the case. It could be you that are strange. So just a kind of a basic rule of reading, especially when you're reading a document that's 3,000 years old and coming from uh, the ancient Near East. There's a witch, a, a seance. There's something like a ghost and God talking to people or not talking to people through dreams and prophets. And this is one of those passages in the Bible that presents us with way more to deal with than we have time for this morning. And so out of all the fascinating things that are going on in this chapter, I want to focus on just one. And it's not the sexiest thing in the chapter, but I think it is the most important aspect of this story for us today. Listen again to verse 16. 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 16. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? Um, you know, there, in the West, we're secular uh, as a worldview. And one of secularism's ideas is that when you take away superstition and you take away the craziness of the dark ages, what you have left is secularism. And that's baloney, because it's lying. Secularism adds something to the pot. It's not just that secularism is an evolved to place where we get rid of superstition. And that would be a lot of fun to talk about this morning, about why is it difficult for us to believe in things like this kind of seance and all of that. But I think something that strikes even more deeply at our worldview, um, those of us who are from the West, is the notion of a God of love turning his back on someone and becoming their enemy. How does this square? How, How can we process the idea that it says here that God has turned away from Saul and become his enemy? What are we to make of this, this terrifying vision 
of God as an enemy. Let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning of Saul's story. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 9. This is when we first met Saul. He came onto the scene as a man controlled by fear and insecurity, and he had a small, selfish heart. But then he met God, and God made him a king. And in chapter 10, verse 9, God gives Saul a new heart, a better heart. And in chapter 10, verse 10, God gives Saul his own spirit. And what's the result of this new heart and God's own spirit? Well, in the very next chapter, we see Saul filled with courage, and he's now got the ability to hate the right things. There are things we should hate. And in chapter 10, he's, in chapter 11, he hates those things and he fights the right battles. He fights God's battles. And because of this new heart and the spirit of God in him, we see him performing a remarkable act of mercy and forgiveness when he lets his political opponents off the hook. But then things change. And by the time we get to the chapter after that, chapter 13, we're beginning to catch glimpses of Saul going back to his old ways. And then in chapter 14, in a moment of fear, while God is speaking to him, Saul becomes so afraid of this army that's preparing to attack that he actually interrupts God, hushes him, silences him, and this is mind-boggling because it is something that I know of being done no other time in Scripture where somebody interrupts the Almighty, puts their hand in his face and says, stop. It's an act unparalleled in the Bible. And then in the next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 15, we see that that moment where Saul has a chutzpah, right, to kind of push on God and and silence him and hush him, we see that it's not just a momentary lapse. We see Saul in chapter 15 that he has begun to nibble away at the edges of God's authority. He's begun to substitute his own will for God's will. And so this beautiful heart that God had given him, this heart that could be so soft and so supple, it becomes hard. Hard towards people. He's a king, hard toward people, his subjects, hard toward people in his own family, and it becomes hard toward God. And so we find God saying to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 10 that he regrets having made Saul king because, and listen to these words, Saul has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Now, this is something that sits right at the center of the Bible. It comes up in the Psalms, in Proverbs, in the Prophets, in the Gospels, in the Epistles. It shows up over and over and over again in the Bible. It is a consistent theme throughout the Bible. At the, and, it, and it's this, right at the heart of it. Here's the way Jesus put it. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 
Saul developed the fateful habit of disobeying God's commandments. It's not that he disobeys everything God commands. And most of the time, he does most of what God commands. But he develops this habit where he modifies God's own commands to suit his own personal conveniences. And he always had plausible reasons. There was always a reason. But at the end of the day, it really wasn't a reason. It was just a justification. And so when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 28, we are reading the, the sad story of a man who is dying from the inside out. Even though when you look at him, he's got vitality. Look at Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 28. Ever since he began to disobey God, his, his old fearfulness has been growing. And in, in this chapter, we see the tragic progression of fear bursting out into a reverse exodus. This chapter, 1 Samuel 28, is the sad story of the undoing of Saul. In verse 5, it says he's afraid. In verse 15, it says he's very afraid. In verse 20, it says he's filled with fear. And in verse 21, he's fallen on the ground in a catatonic state, utterly terrified. Can you see the progression, the intensification? So 1 Samuel 28 is presented to us as the cumulative effects of a long disobedience. Saul has developed the habit of ignoring God's commands. And so God has begun to ignore Saul. And it takes a toll on Saul. And so here he is at the end of his rope, out of touch with God, out of touch with his true self, grasping at straws, alone in the world, facing a deadly situation. And Saul is reduced to sneaking around the back alleys of Israel looking for a witch to replace God. And on the last night of his life, the once mighty, anointed, blessed Saul, who once enjoyed the Lord's intimate friendship and close counsel, now he eats his last meal at the table of demons. How the mighty have fallen. Do you see this vivid picture of a man who has left the faith and now he has God for his enemy? The last state of Saul is worse than he was at first. For those in this room who've been around Christianity for anything more than a few years, you can probably think of someone who has grown into disbelief. Perhaps you are in the middle of that same journey. For some people, leaving the Christian faith can happen in a moment. For other people, such as the great writer Herman Melville, the wrenching departure lasts a lifetime. And yet, fundamentally, the story is the same. It is a falling away. And it happens. 
It happens when a friend betrays his utterly faithful companion, when a woman leaves an utterly devoted husband, when a rebel grieves the spirit and the spirit departs, when a slob escapes the miasma and then decides he prefers the mud pit. People pull away from Christ and their dearest friend becomes their dread enemy because they do not keep on believing. They do not keep the faith. But notice, I am not trying to say to you that falling away from God will sneak up on you. This didn't sneak up on Saul. Falling away from God is not something that sneaks up on people who are keeping faith. God is not in the business of cutting off sincere believers just for kicks. He's not a wanton boy who tortures fleas for sport. He is kind and good and merciful to those who have even the smallest grain of faith. Those who enter the body of Christ in baptism and trust in Christ and confess Jesus and seek him in his word and at his table and serve his people humbly and live in fellowship with brothers and sisters and seek to produce the obedience of faith, you have nothing to fear. Faithful believers will not discover on the day of judgment that they were reprobate after all. Happy marriages do not end in divorce. God does not spring divorce on a faithful bride. But Saul did not keep faith. Now what is faith? The Bible gives us a nice, thick, concrete definition. Not definition, but um, description of faith. One of the lessons we learn from Saul's life is that faith is something you do. It's exercised in the midst of life's trials. Faith is not an escape ticket from trials. It's a way of acting within difficult situations. If you've read the Bible, think about the life of Abraham. In the Bible, Abraham shows us that faith expresses itself, for example, in obedience. And for Abraham, obedience wasn't just a vague concept. It was a thing he actually did in actual circumstances. He left his home country, the land of Ur, to go to this other place that God told him to go to. And Abraham trusts Yahweh, will not abandon him or betray him, and so he obeys, he goes. In another situation for Abraham, faith means believing that God will accomplish what God promises. Abraham's faith involved believing that God's word is reliable because God is reliable. It means acting in confidence in God and his word. To be a Christian is to joyfully receive God's word in the Old and New Testaments. Faithful Abraham reorganizes his life around God's word, God's promises. To, To have Christian faith, it's to entrust yourself to Jesus. To identify yourself with Jesus and his kingdom against all assaults and all criticisms and persecutions and threats. It's trusting that God will, sooner or later, vindicate us. Faith expresses itself in a life of loving Worshipping, following, and obeying Jesus. Faith in the Bible is allegiance 
to King Jesus. It's taking his side. It's being loyal to him. To, to have saving faith in Jesus is to believe God. To believe what God says. To respond in obedience to all that God says. To join in his joyous song and tremble at his threats. And believe that his promises will come to pass. And to obey his commandments. That's what Jesus said. If you love me, you will obey. But what about Saul? And what about the people that some of us know? I mean, if you've been a Christian for anything more than a few years, you know people who have fallen away. Over and over, the Bible warns through stories like the story of Saul and through songs and through poems and straightforward statements that those who receive the favor of God and then toss it aside end up in worse shape than when they started. What we see pictured in Saul is what we heard in our gospel reading. When Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 24, Jesus says, When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. What Jesus is doing is he's reflecting on the story of Saul. And he's saying this is a reality in our world today. Not just in the Old Testament, but in the world today. All, and this is all over the Bible. For example, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, on the same subject we're told, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. If you have entered into the marriage covenant with Jesus by baptism and then turned away and develop long habits of disobedience, you will shipwreck your faith. You will suffer the wrath of a God who makes you his enemy. This is what we see in Saul. Through disobedience, he grieved the Spirit of God, until God turned from Saul and became his enemy. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, that's one, it's in the New Testament. God begs us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, there's God, again, begging us, do not quench the Spirit. And in our reading from Hebrews chapter 10, Verses 19 to 31, we are vividly warned to avoid the path of Saul. Someone who receives the Spirit and then falls away. And we are so clearly reminded it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Whatever we conclude about Saul's final ultimate destiny... He was a good son. He was made a new man by the Spirit. He did fight the Lord's battles on the Lord's time. But then he sinned and he kept sinning and he kept sinning and he kept refusing, kept refusing to repent. And in the crisis moments of his life, he did not respond to God's judgment with repentance. Instead of falling down in humble repentance, we see Saul refusing to turn his heart 
in obedience to God. Instead, he shifts the blame. He excuses it. He, he gets squirrely. He argues. And so he does finally fall down in a catatonic state of utter fear. And he does finally rise up to feast at the table of demons. The Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the stories of Israel, the teachings of Jesus, the letters of Paul, the prayers of the Psalms, they are stuffed with warnings for us, for you, for me. Warnings about falling away from Jesus. Always there's hope. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is constantly on the verge of falling away, called back in the nick of time by the Lord's intervention. But there are also examples in the Bible of some who fell away and never returned. Many of the redeemed from Egypt, even though they were baptized in the sea and fed on Christ, died in the wilderness. In the book of Numbers, we're told the awful stories of Korah, and Dathan and Abiram for star- and, and, and the, after the conquest of Jericho, Achan grabbed some of Yahweh's loot and ended up under a pile of rocks. And in Jesus' own band of followers, don't ever forget Judas. He really did listen to Jesus. He really did speak with Jesus, ate meals with Jesus, ministered in Jesus' name, but eventually he sold it all for 30 pieces of silver. And the same can happen to you and me. That's why these stories are here. That's why these warnings are here. The warnings aren't in the New Testament because it can't happen. It's not a shell game. This can happen. If we rebel and grieve the Spirit, the Lord will turn on us. This is hard. I think this is a lot harder for us to deal with than ghosts and witches. Because you see, we've made love the center of reality, but not, not the love rendered by the story of the Bible, but love as, an, as a kind of nebulous concept of tolerance. Even though that definition of love folds back in on itself and is ultimately unsustainable. The love that's at the center of reality is the love defined by the Scriptures. And it's a thick, complex love that can hold all of this in it. If you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 12. Take care, brothers and sisters. Lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts. It's interesting. Um, Back in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 3 starts with a report of Samuel's death. Verbatim from chapter 25. Chapter 25, we get a report of Samuel's death and David is on the verge of a battle. Verse 28, we get a report of Samuel's death and Saul is on the verge of the battle. 
David is about to make a terrible decision and he encounters a woman. Saul is about to make a terrible decision and he encounters a woman. David does it in daylight. Saul does it at night. Both listen to the women. One is described as intelligent and beautiful. She's a type of Christ. The other is a witch. Both men end up feasting at a table. One at the table of the Lord. And one at the table of demons. There's two big themes in 1 Samuel 28 based on keywords. One is fear. It keeps coming up. I already pointed that out to you. The other is listen and obey. It keeps coming up all through chapter 28. Saul, who had developed the habit of disobeying God, when it comes to the end, he is not free. He is now obeying the voice of a witch. Today, if you hear his voice, there is a table set for you. Will you come to the Lord's table? Look, this is a great way for us to start the new semester of school. Have you picked up some bad habits of disobedience? Of um, not always disobeying, not most of the time disobeying, but when it's inconvenient, substituting your will for God's will. You have a chance to repent. And it's the same chance that David had. It's with a meal. In just a moment, Drew is going to lead us in prayers that celebrate the great grace of God. And it is God, like Abigail, offering you his table. Will you rise up like David and repent? If you're in the midst of a long disobedience... You should be very afraid. This does not end well. But you should also know you have another chance. Come to this table. This is the best way to repent. When we come to the Lord's table, just in your heart, you're saying, God, I am sorry. I'm coming back. I'm coming.